Geogrieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. This evening's programme will consider how Irish history is being told anew through the stories of forgotten women, including many unusual women of faith, in conversation with Clodagh Finn, author of Through Her Eyes. But first, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of Fintan O'Carroll, a composer who transformed Irish liturgical music, a centenary that was honoured last month at the cathedral of his home city, Waterford. I'm delighted to be joined this evening by his son, Kevin O'Carroll, who is also a conductor of liturgical music. Kevin, you are very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much indeed. So your father wasn't always a musician or a composer, uh, was he? He he started in quite a different route. In, indeed. Now, whether he was always a musician or not is uh, questionable because his autobiographical notes say that the only way they could uh, keep him quiet as an infant was to sit him in front of the gramophone. That was the <laughs> that was the only time he would he would stop crying. But um, no, he he started life as a um, a railway clerk. And uh, was there for, oh, up to 1966. Um, he pretty much gave up the hope of ever uh, uh, getting promotion. So he decided to leave it and uh, become a music teacher. But all the time prior to that, he had been working as um, a violinist. Uh, begin with, he was a traditional music violinist and found his way into the classical route and uh, went from there. So your father's move to Waterford coincides, doesn't it, with the tumult caused by the the Second Vatican Council and the instruction that the liturgy must become um, not just uh, translated into the vernacular, but renewed Mm -hmm. and accessible to people to enable the the key theme of the whole thing, which is participation. and your dad um, must have got caught up in in that foment because he 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 dove straight into creating music to help people in that moment, didn't he? He, he did. No, he he actually had come to Waterford as a nine year old, so he was here quite some time. Had been working in church uh, in the uh, Dominican church and subsequently in the friary and then Saint Joseph Benildas and eventually in the cathedral, but. Not only did, was he caught up in that maelstrom that followed Vatican II, he actually purchased uh, a copy of the documents of Vatican II, and I still have the the, uh, the copy, and he has gone into detail in the, the music chapter uh, where he has annotated comments on the side of the pages and underlined pages and really tried to understand from the inside out what it was that Vatican II was looking for in um, the the uh, the music that it was um, going to be using going forward. And one of the things that really distressed him was the prospect of quality music, uh, plain chant, etc., being lost due to the uh, high level of, of uh, music being imported from further afield, music that he had figured wasn't particularly of best quality. I remember him saying once upon a time that we wouldn't dream of using a plastic chalice, so why would we use plastic music? And um, 
in his autobiographical notes, he, he makes a reference that in 1969 he realised that if music had to be written for the liturgy, it couldn't be music for an elite. Uh, it had to be for the ordinary people and the musical vocabulary uh, of the ordinary man of the street is closer to that of the 1600 than of the modern uh, classical music uh, genre. So this is what he was doing. He was writing simple music, but not simplistic music. And we have a great example of that in his um, The the Alleluia, uh, which uh, is vernacularly known as the Celtic Alleluia, which is was sung at... Biden's inauguration and is sung all over the world and I'm sure many of our, our listeners would know it. It becomes a sort of earworm. It's so recognisable. Yeah, I'm sure it's uh, on the Pope's top 10 hits at the moment. He hears it everywhere he goes. Um, the interesting thing about that is he wrote it the year before he died and when he died it hadn't been published but um, on the uh, the summer school, the Irish Church Music Association summer school uh, at which he, he conducted it. Um, Chris Walker was the guest director that year and Walker asked could he use the refrain in something that he was writing and my mother said certainly. He asked my mum because my dad had just passed away and um, then this is where the name Celtic Alleluia comes from. Uh, so he used that and that made it popular. And it's really telling that um, it was quickly recognised as as Irish or Celtic because it is one of the really distinctive features of your father's legacy, isn't it? Is that he he gave us liturgical music in an Irish musical idiom that hadn't been done before. Absolutely. His his earliest introduction to music on a practical level, was with the Irish traditional um, idiom and he never lost that. He never lost his love of Irish music. And I remember um, him commenting, or at least my mum commenting, that after he wrote the Responsorial Psalm, Sian Tiernam Muira, he came out and he said to her, if nothing survives after me, that will, because <laughs> I put my heart and soul into it. And he wrote it for my mum to, to sing. And unfortunately, we don't have a recording of her singing it, uh, which is a, a real pity. But uh, many people uh, hearing Shane Tina uh, attributed to another well-known Irish composer. But in fact, it was Fintan O'Carroll uh, that actually wrote it. And we, we may not have a recording of, of your mother singing Shantir Uera, but um, we, we do have another recording of it, don't we? Uh, well, there, there are recordings of it out there. But strangely enough, even when he was writing in English, there is a strong flavour of, of the Irish tradition going through everything that he wrote. And one of my favourites uh, in this regard is the Our Father from the Mass of the Immaculate Conception. Um, it's in English, but it could only possibly be written by an Irishman. And uh, it would be lovely to hear that. Let's, let's hear that. At the Saviour's command and formed by divine teaching, we dare to say,
Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days, that by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress, as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Kevin, another distinctive thing about your father's work that, that, that we're so lucky to be left with is that it gives us, I think, six whole masses and sequences of responsorial psalms. It's very tied to a particular and quite old view of of, of the Mass, isn't it? And of the liturgy, in contrast to uh, what was going on in the other countries with which we're most closely related, the Americas, uh, North America and the UK and Northern Europe, where there were a lot of hymns being written at this time and the con- congregational singing was being encouraged through through all sorts of hymns, more like from the... Anglican uh, 19th century tradition. And I just wondered, was that deliberate? Uh, Did he have a particular Eucharistic devotion? Or is this a product maybe of of the old cliché that there's no tradition of congregational singing in Irish churches? Well, I I think it was um, probably the latter. Um, He was not just a uh, church music composer. He was a church music practitioner and uh, in the various churches in which he worked he would try desperately to get the congregation to join in and I remember one comment uh, by a a parishioner after after a, a service where the response was well that's what the choir is there for why should I sing and this sort of approach was still uh, extant and uh, to an extent is is still there. Um, But the easy way through to it, he reckoned, was through the responsorial psalms. Hmm. And uh, it was for that reason that he decided to uh, embark on this project to compose responsorial psalms for the Sundays of the year. And um, (laughs) on more than one occasion, I do remember um, driving up to church on a Sunday morning and he'd suddenly remember that he hadn't written a psalm for that day. So he'd <laughs> ask my mum to drive the car and while he was in the car driving to church, the responsorial psalm would be uh, written. And then, of course, it was uh, turned to one of the family in the back of the car. OK, you're on the psalm this morning. This is what it is. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yet... And yet um, people would think of how how carefully crafted all of these elements were. (laughs) Some definitely were, but some were a little um, back of the envelope on a Sunday morning on the way to church. (laughs) I understand that one of his proudest moments was the choice of the Mass of the Immaculate Conception for the Pope's visit, Pope John Paul II's visit to Limerick in 1979. Do you remember him talking about that at the time? Well, what I remember more than anything else is the fact that they had a copy of uh, that Mass uh, specially bound in a 
beautiful light blue leather because not only was the mast going to be used at the uh, celebration in Limerick, but uh, my dad was actually going to bring up a copy of the mass as one of the offertory gifts. And I think if ever uh, he would have been a happy man, it would have been doing that. He would, he would have stood 10 foot tall. In terms of church music, if you were to pick a favourite piece of your father's, what might it be? Um, I suppose one of the pieces that really ties together many of the the strands of his life um, is the Mass of the Annunciation. He was, for many years, a conductor of brass bands. In the Mass of the Annunciation, he has a brass uh, ensemble um, accompanying the organ and choirs. He wanted to have congregational involvement, and this is where the response, the Alleluia response, uh, comes into its own. But he didn't want to neglect the demands of a higher challenge uh, presented by uh, good choirs. So in this um, entrance psalm to the Mass of the Annunciation, we get all of the above. So um, I think we're going to listen to the latter part of that entrance psalm. And uh, coincidentally, his grandson, uh, Fintan Scanlon, is actually the soloist on this recording, which was done a number of years ago. So, um, yeah, the latter part of the Mass of the Annunciation entrance psalm. Kevin O'Carroll son of the Irish liturgical composer Fintan O'Carroll, whose 100th anniversary of birth is celebrated this year. Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Proclaim his help day by day Tell among the nations his glory And his wonders among all the peoples And now, to remember some of the many women that history has overlooked, but who can tell us so much about Irish history and perhaps our own psyches too, I'm delighted to be joined by Clodagh Finn, columnist with the Irish Examiner and author of Through Her Eyes. Clodagh, you are very welcome to it's the Leap of Faith. It's a pleasure to be here, Siobhan. Thank you very much. You say in the author's note to your book that the women that you're talking about are prominent in Irish history, but they were very often privileged. Um, They might have come from the Church of Ireland tradition, some from the Catholic tradition. And while they can't offer us a complete picture of women in Irish history, they do allow us an insight into the country through a female lens that we haven't previously had. That was the whole idea. I, I kind of imagine myself in a TARDIS, Doctor Who-like, you know, just touching down at various periods in history and meeting a woman there and telling her her story. But through that, telling, looking at Ireland at that time through a woman's eyes. So that was the idea. And I also wanted to start very early on. So the first woman in the book is in the Stone Age and it finishes in the digital present. 
So let's start with the TARDIS stopping down in the Stone Age. Are you thinking of Macha? The, the no, Maka is, is further than the Stone okay. Age. She's the Iron Age. Um, so that that's quite a leap. So she's about 95 BC. And Maka is a mythical figure. But what's very interesting about Maka, particularly, I suppose, in terms of the ecclesiastical history of Ireland, is that she is almost forgotten, I think, in the south of Ireland. But actually, Armagh, which is the ecclesiastical centre of Ireland, is named after her because Armagh is Ard Vaca. So it's the height of this goddess Maka. And you can still visit Owen Vaca or Navanfort, which was built as a dedication to her. And she was a goddess who came like lightning on a stream into, you know, the present day um, because Maka is a very fast runner and she has warned her husband not to say anything about it. But they are at the king's feast and Crinu can't contain himself. And he says, my wife would be able to outrun the king's steed. And she's heavily pregnant with twins. And the king of Ulster, Conor MacNassa, just says, you have to race my steed. And she pleads and pleads with him, wait until after I have my twins. He's not for turning. She races on the track. She's like an arrow, beats the steed. And just as she goes over the finishing line, she has her twins. And she curses the men of Ulster, all but Cúchulain, and disappears to the other world. And of course, people have, have been inhabiting this country and expressing their faith in all sorts of ways that remain in the landscape um, for thousands of years. So it seems a shame for me now to turn to Christianity <laughs> as if that's the history when in fact it's it's just the Goes recent on for thousands, <laughs> millennia, yes. <laughs> but I, I will turn to Christianity and ask you about St. Dahlon, an early Irish saint. It's very interesting about St. Dahlon because she would have been at the changeover, if you like, because um, there is a well associated with her in Kerry Head. And that must have been a sacred well. I would say that people probably venerated um, that place long before Christianity, if you like, took it over. Dahlon was there in around the 5th century. And she's interesting for many reasons. One is that um, she was on one side of the headland and her brother was a bishop on the other side. So it would have been a very important ecclesiastical um, kind of landscape. And her brother was the man who um, baptised St. Brendan. So they were associated with very big saints. And it's also, I think, Bridget might have come to the place at the time. Um, Dahlon's miracle has endured for 15 centuries. And people still come to the well to look for a cure for eyes in particular, because what happened was, and it's told beautifully in Dukas.ie, they have the school's collection and local people tell the story. And there are many versions, but one is that a group of raiders came to attack her convent or her small settlement, would probably have been a ring fort, and she struck them blind. And they pleaded with her, um, please restore our sight. And she said, if you leave in peace, I will restore your sight. Go and wash in the well um, and leave in peace. And they did. And as I said, 15 centuries later, people come and they report cures. Let's fast forward uh, to the end of the, the 19th, and the early 20th century. 
when your book educates us about Clotilde Graves, an acclaimed journalist and playwright and author of best-selling novels. Clotilde Graves is probably a personal favourite of mine because as a journalist, I loved to read about her. She was born in Buttevant, born into a Protestant family. Buttevant had a big barracks at the time and her father was a major there. And I'd say it would be very difficult to be a child in a barracks. She said herself that she didn't get much education. Um, they had difficulty, financial difficulties. She moved to England and she thought herself she was in her father's friend's library and she started reading under the table in his library, Shakespeare and all these wonderful works. And at 17, she was freelancing on Fleet Street. And there's, a beautiful, there's two things that I love about her. One is a description of her writing by burning the midnight oil at 3 a.m., finishing a story and then saying, and there's crows and, and cockerels in the background and she says I have to sleep because I have to be back in Fleet Street to uh, see if I can get some stories. And in Fleet Street she was really well regarded. They said Clotilde is quite one of us. She wears her hair short, she dresses in trousers, she smokes, She's the she, she, she rode a bicycle. She's the epitome of the new woman. Um, but it was very difficult to make a living as a writer. She was a writer and an illustrator and an actor and at several times she writes herself into ill health and she kind of says, I had brain fever. And just as she's doing really well, she was one of the only women to have two plays on at the same time, one of the only people ever to have two plays on at the same time. She has several breakdowns. And around 1893, she converts to Catholicism. And it's very interesting because she wrote about very difficult subjects. She wrote about alcoholism. She wrote about domestic abuse. She wrote about the hypocrisy of the Victorian age, how men were allowed to get away with something. Um, whereas if women did, if they had an affair or whatever, they would be pilloried. And I suppose the only indication we have of how her faith operated in her life was that she did temper her views on abortion, but she remained feminist and strong and had strong women characters throughout her life. She's, she's a person, I think, who deserves far more recognition in Ireland mm -hmm. than she gets. Sounds like it. Yeah. And your book I, has many women who deserve far more attention this than is they, it. they get. Yeah. I mean, the uh, painter of the Celtic shrine, um, again, from the, the end of the uh, 19th into the 20th century, Concepta Lynch. I'd, I'd never heard of her before. Oh, well, you're in for a treat, Siobhan, because you can visit the oratory that she painted. I like to call her the Irish Michelangelo. And it's only a slight exaggeration because while the oratory she painted is maybe four metres by five metres, she was entirely Michelangelo-like because she... Uh, perched on a Boccadio ladder and she painted the ceiling and the walls and she did this as a nun who thought she was up at five to pray she taught during the day art and music and then she went in to do this work of art it's, uh, it's like a 3D 
um, Book of Kells. There are vivid colours and it's done in house paints because she was an, in an enclosed order and she used to send out the teachers and her students to get the paint and they'd love to see them coming because in the Ireland of the 20s and 30s it was all about browns and greens and she was ordering reds and blues and oranges and she even made her own pigment of gold and there are you know mythical birds and there are monks pulling each other's beards and it's very interesting in the National Library um, I was able to see some of her um, her stencils which she cut from blackout curtains she made use of everything but also her notes and she drew a, a direct line from herself right back to the monks who these scribes who made these books and for her art and prayer were two sides of the same coin and you can see that you know she used to say to her pupils um, now we would play every note for Jesus you know and at Christmas she made life-size models for the crib and she really brought her faith to life through art and the great thing as I say is you can visit this oratory it's open at certain times so log on to Dunleary um, Council a treat in store for you. Thank you. Claude Finn, author of Through Her Eyes, A New History of Ireland in 21 Women. Thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Leap of Faith is presented by Siobhan Garrigan. The researcher is Sinead Kennedy. The broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland and the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. If you'd like to contact the programme, you can email faith at rte.ie.